we remember then, don't we, that the exhortation through chapter one, certainly in those uh, concluding words in from verse 22 to 25, was hear and do. And obviously it's the word that we need to hear, as the Lord Jesus Christ taught us in the uh, parable about the wise man who built his house upon the rock. And so we read then in verse 23, and we'd like to just bring this out a little bit more. For if any be a hearer of the word and not a doer, he's like unto a man beholding his natural face in a glass. So here's this analogy of looking into a mirror, a glass. And it may well be that this is drawing our minds to the laver, because you might remember the laver was made from mirrors. Uh, so on the screen, I'll uh, give you the, the cross-reference for that from Exodus 38 and verse 8. Uh, and the laver was where the priests washed. Now, water is a symbol again of the word. For example, and I've not got this on the screen, but Ephesians 5 and verse 26 speaks of the washing of water by the word. So here in Exodus, Israel had to convert something which was of worldly vanity that was totally useless in the service of God into something that was central to the service of God. And so we should use our energy in the things of God rather than the vanities of this life. And this is the definition of what it is to be a doer of the word. This is why we're told that what needs to be washed in the laver was their hands. Can you see that in verse 20 of Exodus 30? Their hands there on the screen, their hands and their feet. You see, the hands and the feet are the limbs that are used in doing uh, and James reinforces the point in uh, chapter four of James. Again, he speaks of the need to be doers of the word. You see that in verse 11. And he writes in verse eight of James four, draw nigh to God and he will draw nigh to you. Cleanse your hands, ye sinners. Cleanse your hands, you know, the washing and purify your heart, ye double minded. And of course, the hands were cleansed in the labor. So let's consider then the consequence of these links. The means by which you can look at your reflection and concentrate on self, a mirror, a looking glass, is destroyed and replaced with a vessel to hold water, the word. But the ability to see reflection is retained now in a different form. You see, what we see in 2 Corinthians 3 is this verse. We all, with open face, beholding as in a glass, a mirror, the glory of the Lord are changed into the same image from glory to glory, even as by the spirit of the Lord. So, so what we're being told is we need to stop worrying about what our outward man looks like. Forget the show. Rather spend more time trying to reflect the glory of God. We want to reflect his character so that others can see him in us, see the fruit of his spirit. When we read the word of God, we need to be able to see ourselves in that, that what we're reading, we are trying to reflect. Do our lives have some parallel with what we're reading? What do we know about God? Well, we know, don't we, that he's a God of mercy, grace, long-suffering, abundant in goodness and truth. That's his glory. What, what does that look like? Well, we know, don't we, that he's a father of the fatherless, 
a judge of the widows. And so if we're to see a reflection of the word in us, it's got to be seen in the things that we do. And so the exhortation there in verse 27 of chapter one, pure religion under far before God and the father is this, to visit the fatherless and widows in their affliction and to keep himself unspotted from the world. And you may think, well, yeah, it's such a challenge trying to, to live the word of God. And that's true. But, but look now, and I'm going to tell you, the challenge goes up, really, uh, as we now come into chapter two and verse one. My brethren, have not the faith of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory, with respect of persons. You see, if you ask me to visit the old lady who's lovely and fun, and if I go to her house, there's bound to be chocolate biscuits, um, always like a decent cup of tea, she's interesting to talk to, no problem. I'll happily go and see her. I'll see her once a week. But ask me to go and visit the old sister who's starting to get a bit grumpy, her house is a bit messy. Well, I'll go there once a decade. And that's not right, is it? The glorious Lord Jesus Christ wasn't like that. If we're to have the faith of our Lord Jesus Christ, we need to get some consistency in our lives. Our faith can't be random. It's listening to the word of God and trying to apply it no matter what the circumstances, no matter who's in front of us in our lives. Remember, we saw in chapter one that you need to be, we saw it there in verse uh, 19 of chapter one, swift to hear, slow to speak and slow to wrath. And we saw that being swift to hear, well, chapter one was about that. We have to hear and do, slow to speak. Chapter three is about the tongue, slow to wrath. Chapter four says, from whence come wars and fightings among you. So we see how that develops. So you might think, well, what's chapter two got to do with all this then? Well, there's a key word in chapter two, and uh, hopefully it's something that you've seen. It, it's a word which occurs 16 times in the whole letter, and 13 of those occasions are in chapter two. So what is that key word that runs through chapter two? Hopefully you're telling me it's the word faith. So I'm going to give you one minute to colour the word faith. Um, I went for blue. I don't know what you choose. Faith in chapter one. Uh, oh, chapter two, we're going to go for it first of all. Chapter two and verse one. I see it again halfway through verse five. I see it again uh, in verse seven, uh, verse 14. Mine have gone a bit faded. Good job on colouring them again. Verse 17, 18, 18 again, 20, 22, twice, 24, once, 26, faith. So where else? They're the ones I'm picking up just now, but uh, have a look through them yourself. Okay, use a concordance if needs be. Look up the word, make sure that you're able to see that. Make your Bible come alive, you know, make it yours. You'll find that, uh, yeah, marking your Bible is a really great way to get into enjoying doing some Bible study. So why have I got you to colour this word faith? Well, going back to this idea that 
Chapter one, swift to hear. Chapter three, slow to speak. The question I asked is where does chapter two fit in? And of course, it's a development, isn't it, of being swift to hear, swift to listen, because faith comes by hearing. We've got to hear the word of God. That, so, of course, faith fits into this. Our faith comes from the word. And in studying the word, we find out about God's character that was perfectly shown to us through the Lord Jesus Christ. And through him, we come to appreciate that with God, there is no respect of persons. And that, in turn, has got to then affect our dealings with others, that the word of God should be implanted in our lives. And almost to show us that, to get this idea across, that the word of God has got to be absolutely embedded. You've got to find it all over the place in our lives. It seems to me that James does something which is really unique and very cool. What we see is that the themes of the whole letter are all seen in chapter one. And so you've now got your next task, okay? So don't worry if you can't get all of these down. Again, if you email me uh, and uh, I'll happily send you the PowerPoint and the PowerPoint will have the answers for you. But just spend a couple of minutes now shooting through. Can you find these themes in the rest of the letter? So there I've got chapter one, verse one, two, three, four, five, six. So basically every verse in chapter one sets up a theme that you'll be able to see further in the letter. Give you a couple of minutes. So I'm just picking out an easy one. If I look at verse 21, the word meekness, I can see in chapter three and verse 13, he talks about the fact that uh, we've got to um, have meekness again. So what I'm saying is just time and again, these themes that are set up in chapter one are coming out in the letter. And it's almost like the letter is our life. Uh, interestingly, the Apostle Paul uses that, um, that idea and talks about the Corinthians being his epistle, being the letter. In the end, w- the, the Lord Jesus Christ was the word made flesh. And I just wonder, in, this, in a very kind of simple way here, we're just seeing how that the word of God has got to come out in our lives. And, and this letter here is almost just demonstrating that in this lovely way that the themes are coming out through the letter, through the chapters of our lives, as it were, the word of God has got to be just coming out all the time. Well, I'm going to uh, move on, but I'll leave that on the screen for a bit longer. Um, But hopefully you can kind of hang with me. And as I say, just email me and I'll happily get you this uh, PowerPoint. But chapter two then is all about, isn't it, how we demonstrate our faith, having listened to the word of God, How do we actually put that into practice? And do we realize that the way that we put it into practice, we've got to be consistent. Much of our dealings with others 
show our attitude to the Lord Jesus Christ and to God. And so James starts with a scenario in chapter two regarding a poor man and a rich man. And he shows how wrong it is to claim to have the faith of the Lord Jesus Christ if we are showing respect to persons. So let's just read it again. Verse two, if there come into your assembly a man with a gold ring and goodly apparel and there come also a poor man in vile clothing and you have respect to him that weareth the fine clothing and say unto him, sit thou here in a good place and say to the poor, stand thou there or sit under my footstool. Are ye not then partial in yourselves and have become judges of evil thoughts? Hearken, my beloved brethren, hath not God chosen the poor of this world, rich in faith, and heirs of the kingdom which he has promised to them that love him? But ye have despised the poor. Do not rich men oppress you and draw you before their judgment seats? So James warns them against showing partiality. He says in verse 8, If you fulfil the royal law according to the scripture, Thou shalt love thy neighbour as thyself, you do well. But if you respect, have respect of persons, you commit sin and are convicted of the law as transgressors. And he goes on to use the example of the law that they know. Remember, he's writing to scattered Jews to show how wrong it is to justify looking after the rich, but ignoring the poor. So he says in verse 11, look, Whosoever shall keep the whole law and yet offend in one point, he's guilty of all. Verse 10, verse 11. He that said, do not commit adultery, said also, do not kill. Now, if thou commit no adultery, yet if thou kill, thou art become a transgressor of the law. So speak ye and so do ye as they that shall be judged by the law of liberty. So he's saying, look, if you killed someone, you're just as guilty as someone who's killed and committed adultery. So, so to look after the rich, but to ignore the poor, you don't have a leg to stand on. But we all do it, don't we? J just think down your ecclesia, like whatever meeting you're in, have a think through the, the different people in that meeting. Perhaps you can picture them actually sitting in the meeting room and uh, imagine each one of those. Are there some people that you easily talk to and yet there are others in there who you've perhaps hardly ever spoken to, perhaps even never spoken to. In our lives, we need to be trying to reach out to people and show a consistency in our dealings with others. If we're prepared to treat with mercy, God will treat us mercifully. So speak you, verse 12, so do as those that are going to be judged by the Lord. If you want God to, to be kind to you, to judge you with the law of liberty, to be to be generous. He says, he shall have judgment without mercy that has showed no mercy. If you can't be kind to others, don't expect God to be kind to you. Mercy rejoiceth against judgment. In our lives, we'll make mistakes. There's no doubt about that. But looking at those verses we've read, there seems to be to me a glaring connection to somebody in the Old Testament who made even those mistakes. If I asked you who in the Old Testament did commit both adultery and murder, who would that be? And I'm assuming that you guys are going to say David. Now what's more, when Nathan the prophet came to David in 2 Samuel 12, 
God sent him to get David to recognize his sin. And at that time, David was told a story by Nathan. Can you remember what that story was about? If you don't, then I'll remind you. It was about a rich man and a poor man. Isn't that interesting that here in James 2, we've just started with a story about a rich man and a poor man, and then we come on to somebody's committing adultery and murder. We're surely thinking of David here. And you see, under the law, David didn't have a leg to stand on. He was condemned to death. What saved David was his faith. Come with me to Psalm 51. So if you've got a pencil, stick it in here in James 2. Let's go to Psalm 51 together. And this is the psalm that David was inspired to write. So we believe that God would have given David these words, which is why they are so helpful for every generation. And here in this psalm, we're going to see words that would express better than even David could have ever put it. Words that um, help him to come to terms with the fact that he needs forgiveness. And the opening words of this psalm, you can see the context from the title of the psalm, a psalm of David, when Nathan the prophet came to him after he'd gone into Bathsheba. And these opening words, have mercy on me, O God, is where James is taking his readers, isn't it? Have mercy on me, O God. This is what we need. But look at verse 16 and 17. David recognises the problem. He says, thou desirest not sacrifice, else would I give it. Thou delightest not in burnt offerings, but the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and a contrite heart, O God, thou wilt not despise. David recognises nothing that he can give. What he needs to do is rely on the mercy of God. And just as David relied on God's mercy, so do we. And we need to reciprocate that mercy to others. The Lord Jesus Christ taught us, didn't he? Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. That is such an important thing. Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Look at what he says in verse 12 here in Psalm 51. Restore unto me the joy of thy salvation and uphold me with thy free spirit. The word free is the idea of liberty. That's what the word liberty means, to be made set free. And here David is saying, uphold me with thy free spirit. Now, interestingly, that word free is also translated noble. And you remember that in James 2, he refers to the law of liberty as the royal law. It's the noble law. David recognised God's mercy in his life and in turn that then affected his relationships with others. So he then says in verse 13 of Psalm 51, then will I teach transgressors thy ways and sinners shall be converted unto thee. You see, David in recognising that God's free spirit, God's the law of liberty, that, that God would be willing to forgive sin if David put his faith in God. David saw that and he says, look, Lord God, if you will uphold me with that free spirit, then I will teach transgressors 
of thy ways and sinners shall be converted i will be willing to, to to help others too because of what you've done for me and in fact the next psalm that david writes in relation to this is psalm 32 so let's just go to psalm 32 so this is when david has recognized that he's been forgiven and he says at the beginning of the psalm, blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is God. Blessed is the man who recognizes how good it is to be forgiven of God. But then notice verse 10. Many sorrows shall be to the wicked, but he that trusteth in the Lord, mercy shall compass about him. Back in James 2, we see why James says in verse 12, so speak ye. And so do ye as they that shall be judged by the law of liberty. In fact, when we look at the, the Greek word, uh, eleutheria, it is uh, the word liberty in the New Testament. We find that of the 11 times it's used, 10 refer to the freedom that we have in the Lord Jesus Christ. It was David's faith in his seed in the Lord Jesus Christ which meant that the Lord God would judge him not according to the law of works, but according to the law of liberty, by which someone can become free if they have faith and trust in God's mercy. So I know that the example of David is a subtle one here in James 2. It's not that David is, is mentioned by name, but I do think that uh, the fact that uh, that, Dave, that James keeps referring to my beloved brethren. David actually means beloved. And so I think we do see David coming through this. And uh, certainly here, the adultery, the, uh, uh, the murder, the, the story about the poor man, the rich man, they draw us to David. And here I think what we're seeing is an example of somebody who recognised that if they'll put their faith in God, and try to live that faith, then God will be merciful to them. Our faith in God's mercy must impact our lives. It did with David. What was shown to him, he then tried to teach and work with others. We've got to do the same. And for anyone who would think that faith is just some ethereal characteristic, which we keep with us, James goes on now, doesn't he, to show us the importance of grasping faith is active. Verse 14 of James 2. What does it profit, my brethren, though a man say he hath faith and have not works? Can faith save him? If a brother or sister be naked and destitute of daily food, and one of you say to him, depart in peace, be ye warmed and filled. Notwithstanding, ye give them not those things which are needful to the body. What does it profit? Even so, if faith have not works, is dead being alone. And so you say, look, if you just think to yourself that you can just, yeah, I've got a faith, but you don't actually live that faith, you're kidding yourself that you've got a faith at all. And it's interesting to note that the examples that are used here are similar to the examples that John the Baptist said to the Jews who came to him. And uh, perhaps we can have a look at this in, in Luke 3. You can see that on the screen. John the Baptist berates the people for not bringing forth fruit. Now remember, that's what we've got to try to bring forth. 
the people take him seriously and say, well, what, what should we do then? And his reply is this. If you've got two goats, share them. If you've got food, share it. For us, it's the same. If the works aren't there, the faith isn't there. It's a bit like love. I can't say I love, but not show it. You know, it's, just, it's rubbish, isn't it? And it would just simply say that if you're not showing your love to somebody, you clearly don't love them. You see somebody's love through their actions. And faith is exactly the same. It's through our actions that we demonstrate our faith, our belief in God. So it's kind of almost a nonsense when somebody writes on their Facebook page, I'm a Christadelphian. So they're declaring they've got a faith. And yet if the stuff that's on their Facebook page is completely inconsistent with that, then they're kidding themselves that they are a Christadelphian. They're not, you can't, how can you be a brother or sister of the Lord Jesus Christ unless you're hearing it and doing That's what Jesus said. It's got to be seen in our lives. We can all see surely that that kind of inconsistency isn't right. And James has a lot to say about this. In fact, what we find is a contrast in the letter between our inconsistency and the consistency of God. So here is your next challenge. On the screen, I've got there for you the fact that God gives to all liberally. So he gives to all. There's no partiality with God. With him, there is no variation. His wisdom is pure. The word pure means unalloyed. It's absolutely, it's one. Whereas in contrast, and this is your challenge now, look through those references and see how man is inconsistent. So one minute, go for it with those references. Can you see the inconsistency of man against God's consistency? Okay, so I'm going to keep us going and I'm going to try and develop this a bit more. You see, I think this theme does keep going through, James. So let's pick it up then in verse 18 of chapter 2. Yea, a man will say, thou hast faith and I have works. Show me thy faith without thy works and I will show them my faith by my works. Thou believest there is one God. Okay, you do okay. But the demons also believe and tremble. But wilt thou know, O vain man, that faith without works is dead? Now, what he's saying is that we have to try to reflect our belief, our faith in one God. The implication of saying you believe there is one God is that you give your all in serving him. You're not split in your allegiance. Your life needs to be an outworking of your faith. James says you believe in one God. On its own, though, it's not enough. There's the references for that. If we look at Mark 12, we'll see here that the Lord Jesus Christ, as on the screen for you, spoke of this as the most important of the commandments. Okay, The first of all the commandments is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord. Okay? It's so important. However, on its own, it means nothing to say, yep, I believe in one God. The Lord Jesus Christ goes on to explain what it means to believe in one God. This is what it means, that you love him with all your heart, soul, mind, strength, and you love your neighbour as yourself, the royal law. 
In other words, to believe in one God means that you can't be divided in your loyalties like the double minded man. Rather, we need to give God everything that we have. That's our faith in action. James writes, well, you believe in one God. OK, that's good. But unless it has an impact on your life, your faith is pointless. Anyone can believe in one God. Verse 19, even the devils believe, the demons believe, a mentally ill person can believe that. When we think of Jesus healing mentally ill people, and we don't think this is just a random thing to say that even someone with a demon, someone with a mental illness can believe it. We think we've got to be made here to think, think. When we think of Jesus healing mentally ill people, there's only one that we can name. His name is Legion. Where do we learn of Legion? Luke chapter 8, where we were with the power of the sower. Let's go to Luke chapter 8 together. Let's put our marker in James 2. Luke 8. So Luke 8. And you remember that the Lord Jesus Christ told the power of the sower. We saw that in chapter 8, verses 1 to 15. You see in verse 21, my mother and my brethren are they which hear the word of God and do it. James 1 in the margin, quick. And now we're coming on to the Lord Jesus Christ going through the storm and then coming to Legion. And we're going to read now from verse 26 of Luke 8. When they arrived at the country of the Galileans, which is over against Galilee, and when Jesus went forth to land, there met him out of the city a certain man which had devils. Even the devils believed, the Lord Jesus said. Here's a man that had devils, demons, okay? He's got a mental illness. He had it a long time and he wore no clothes, neither abode in any house, but in the tombs. When he saw Jesus, he cried out and fell down before him and with a loud voice said, What have I to do with thee, Jesus, thou son of God most high? I beseech thee, torment me not. So here is Legion. He's got a demon. He's mentally ill. He's a, a good example of someone who believes in God. We see it here. And even perceives who Jesus is. But he's an outstanding example of someone who isn't single-minded in their approach to God. Can you remember what Legion means? It means we are many. That's what Legion means. We are many. Look at verse 30. Jesus says, what is thy name? He said, Legion, because many devils, demons, were entered into him. So Legion is an outstanding example of somebody who is at least double-minded. He's double-minded. So you see now the connections that we're beginning to put onto the screen here. Here is an example of somebody, yes, he could believe in God, but was it being shown in his life? Well, in contrast to him, we see the Lord Jesus Christ, single-minded in his determination to put his father's will first. And we see his faith being put into action. And we're going to see it now in Legion, who, first of all, we see Legion naked 
verse 27, with no clothes. But look what's happened by the time the Lord Jesus Christ has finished with him. We see in verse 35, when they went out to see what was done and came to Jesus and found the man out of whom the devils had departed now, sitting at the feet of Jesus, clothed and in his right mind. And remember, James has said, if you see a brother or sister naked, clothe them. Here's the Lord Jesus Christ living out his faith, single minded in his approach. And he taught us to do the same, to seek first the kingdom of God. He taught us that we can't serve God and man. We can't be double minded. And he showed us in his life, his faith through his works. And where did he get his faith from? Of course, it was the word. He could be called the word made flesh because he lived the word so much in his life. And what we need to be trying to do is getting some consistency between our faith and our works. And the only way that we'll ever do that is to align our lives to God's will with his word. This is the crucial starting point, the word of God. And so back now in James 2, we see then the conclusion of this chapter. That before us is set up the example of Abraham and David. Sorry, Abraham and Rahab, my apologies. But David on the mind. Verse 21. Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he'd offered Isaac his son upon the altar? Seest thou how faith wrought with his works, and by works was faith made perfect. And the scripture was fulfilled, which saith, Abraham believed God, he had faith, and it was imputed unto him for righteousness, and he was called the friend of God. You see then how that by works a man is justified and not by faith only. Now, let's not separate faith and works. They're being separated here to help us see that actually you've got to put works in your life. But in the end, they're the same thing. If you've got faith, it will be shown in your life. Likewise also was not Rahab the harlot justified by works when she had received the messengers and sent them out another way. And so surely the lesson there is whoever you are, whether you're Abraham, the father of the Jewish nation, whether you're Rahab, a Gentile harlot, the only basis of salvation is faith, true faith, which is shown in action, true faith, which has come from the word of God. Abraham was told by God, Abraham, I want you to go to a country which you don't know. Abraham got up and he went. He, whatever the word of God said, he would do. Rahab, you know, just look at the example of Rahab. Stick your marker in. Let's go back to Rahab. Joshua, Joshua chapter, what do we need for Rahab? Joshua 2, I think. Joshua chapter 2, yeah. Joshua 2 and verse 10. This is what Rahab says. We have heard how Yahweh dried up the water of the Red Sea. And as soon, verse 11, as we had heard, they heard, Rahab heard about God, but she did something about it. And because she did something about it, she was saved. Abraham heard the word of God. He did something about it and he was saved. That is what faith is about. So back in James, you now we could develop some more on Rahab, but so we're going to leave it now. 
let's just get this crucial lesson in our minds. Be hearers of the word and do it. Faith is about hearing the word of God and putting it into action. Hear and do. There's your definition of faith. So what have we learned then? Well, we've learned the need to be swift to hear. Listen to God's word. Keep listening to God's word. Where each of us feels that we're pulling in two directions, we need to ensure that our whole life is given to God. We're consistent. God wants our all. It's okay to believe in one God, but actually to believe in one God is to believe that you give him everything. He wants all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, all your strength. We thought a lot about the need to live by faith, a faith which is active. When we see a need, we look to try to help other people. We're putting our faith into practice in our lives. Does that mean that we need to be, be desperately going out, trying to find every problem in this world and solve it to say, look, we've got the solution? Of course it doesn't. It doesn't mean that at all. We're trying to get people to, to, to focus on God and his ways. But it does mean that if we come across a problem, of course we try to deal with it and help. We thought about the need to be consistent, recognizing that actually there are times when we find it easy to, to show love to somebody, but other times we might find that a struggle. We've got to work on that consistency recognizing that the Lord Jesus Christ is in them. So we've got to be single-minded and not double-minded. And so I hope there's some helpful lessons that we can take from James 1 and 2 and try to apply in our lives. And as I say, if the, the Lord Jesus Christ remains away, we'll happily try and pick up from James again and, and keep going another time. But for now, lot of love. I hope that uh, you've enjoyed going through this study together this afternoon. See you for now. So here in Galatians chapter 1, uh, which I believe is like to be a very early letter in the New Testament, Paul is explaining how that after three years in the wilderness following his conversion, he went to Jerusalem. So here we are in Galatians 1 and verse 15. When it pleased God, who separated me from my mother's womb and called me by his grace to reveal his son in me, that I might preach among the heathen, the Gentiles, Immediately I conferred not with flesh and blood, neither went I up to Jerusalem to them that were apostles before me, but I went into Arabia and returned again unto Damascus. Then after three years I went up to Jerusalem to see Peter and abode with him fifteen days, but other of the apostles saw I none, save James the Lord's brother. So James was therefore a prominent member of the Ecclesia in Jerusalem. Uh, we can just clearly get that from that, can't we? That he, the only other person that he, he saw was James, the Lord's brother. And then in, in chapter 2 uh, and verse 9, um, we're told that James, Cephas, Peter, 
and John, who were pillars in the ecclesia. So uh, James then was a pillar in the Jerusalem ecclesia, a really strong member who was helping the ecclesia in Jerusalem. And in Acts chapter 15, we get a little bit of a glimpse of James at work. So, so let's turn there now. So Acts chapter 15, and we're going to see if we can just bring out a couple of things that help us to see this James at work. This chapter is quite often referred to as the Jerusalem Council, and it's where the apostles come together and they are making a decision about what to do with the Gentiles coming into the ecclesias. And people who know Greek have pointed out that there are similarities here in the text of the letter that James writes, as we're going to see, and some of the things that come out in Acts chapter 15. So, for example, James suggests in this chapter that they write, that the apostles in Jerusalem write a letter to the Gentile believers. And, and that letter then is suggested there in verse 20. He says, that we should write to them, unto them, that they abstain from pollution of idols, from fornication, from things that are strangled and from blood. And so verse 23, they write the letter and look how it starts. They wrote letters by them after this manner. The apostles and elders and brethren send greeting. So this letter starts with greeting my brethren. And actually, the only other letter in the New Testament that starts with that same uh, beginning is James 1 and verse 1. So there's a first very small little connection. Another quick example is the phrase in verse 13. You see, in this letter, it's this council. Lots of people get up and start talking. But we see there in verse 13 that after they had held their peace, so lots of people have been talking after they'd all held their peace, James answered saying, men and brethren, hearken unto me. And that expression is used there in James 2 and verse 5. Hearken, my beloved brethren. Perhaps more importantly is something that we're able to pick up by observation, because we notice that in this meeting, as I've said, lots of people get up and speak. Uh, Paul and Barnabas, first of all, at the beginning of the chapter, uh, and then in verse five, uh, there rose up certain sect of the Pharisees, and, and so they're talking. And then verse six, the apostles came together, they're talking. And so, and then Peter starts talking. Lots of people are talking through this. And finally, we get to that verse 13 that we've read. James is the last person to stand up to talk. Now, we notice that in the letter that James writes, and we've already read this verse together, he says there in verse 19 of chapter one, let every man be swift to hear, slow to speak. So here was a man who lived out his faith, who took up the word of God, the words of the Lord Jesus, and applied them in his life. And furthermore, he's now writing a letter to brothers and sisters who he's going to give that same advice to. Make the word of God a part of your life. Come with me now to Matthew chapter 12. Of course, we're going back in time now to, to the Lord Jesus Christ's ministry. And here, James, as part of the Lord Jesus Christ's family, 
was actually struggling to believe in the Lord Jesus. That his whole family seemed to struggle at times to, to believe in what he was doing. We're told here in verse 46 that while Jesus talked, so Matthew 12, verse 46, while Jesus yet talked to the people, behold, his mother and his brethren stood without, desiring to speak with him. Then one said unto him, Behold, thy mother and thy brethren stand without, desiring to speak with thee. But Jesus answered and said unto him, that told him, Who is my mother and who are my brethren? And he stretched forth his hands toward his disciples and said, Behold, my mother and my brethren. For whosoever shall do the will of my Father which is in heaven, the same is my brother and sister and mother. So James was there and he heard then the Lord Jesus Christ speaking to them at that time and saying, look, if you want to be one of my brothers, you need to be somebody who does what I'm saying. And then James would have heard what was said next, surely, because look now at how chapter 13 begins. On the same day, went Jesus out of the house. Well, that's where James is. He's already outside the house sat by the seaside and great multitudes were gathered together unto him so that he went into a ship and sat and all the multitudes stood on the shore and Jesus spake many things unto them in parables saying behold a sower went forth to sow so I believe then that James was there and he would have heard the Lord Jesus Christ telling that parable now I don't think he was immediately converted it perhaps wasn't until he saw the resurrected Lord Jesus Christ that his life really changed. Because we know that the Lord Jesus specifically appeared to him. We're told that in 1 Corinthians 15. But we'll see in a moment how through the Spirit, he seemed to be caused to be remember uh, that James is able to remember the words that were spoken on this day. Uh, come now to Acts chapter 1. So we're just continuing to just put this case together with this being the James before we go back to James 1. So in Acts chapter 1, we see then after the resurrection, so we haven't turned there, but I've said to you that in 1 Corinthians 15, we learn that Jesus specifically appeared after his resurrection to this James. And now in Acts 1, the Lord Jesus Christ, we know from verse 11, he's ascended into heaven. And now James is absolutely on board. He is a clear believer. So we read in verse 14 that the disciples all continued with one accord in prayer and supplication with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and with his brethren. So now James is converted. He's now one of the ecclesia that's in Jerusalem. And as the ecclesia there starts becoming uh, bigger, things actually start becoming more and more difficult uh, as actually people start persecuting the Christians. And of course, you'll remember that the chief persecutor was Saul, who was there to try and get them. And you remember how that if you turn over to Acts chapter 7, Stephen is stoned to death with Saul being the one that's there uh, watching over those things and then as we come into chapter 8 we read this in Acts chapter 8 and verse 1 that Saul was consenting unto Stephen's death and there arose there a great persecution 
against the ecclesia which was at Jerusalem. And they were all scattered abroad throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. And devout men carried Stephen to his burial and made great lamentation over him. As for Saul, he made havoc of the ecclesia, entering into every house and hailing men and women and committed them to prison. Therefore, they that were scattered abroad went everywhere preaching the word. And it's these people who James would have known well. He was a pivotal member, a pillar of the ecclesia in Jerusalem. It's these people that we believe that James was writing to. Just notice, these are they in verse four that were scattered abroad. So now let's go back to James one and verse one. Pencil in place, there it is. James one, verse one. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ to the 12 tribes which are scattered abroad. Greeting. We know who these are. In my margin, I've written Acts 8, verses 1 to 4. These are the brothers and sisters who were there in Jerusalem and now scattered. And interestingly, it's this idea of the scattered Jews that caused me to consider the fact that James had been listening to the Lord Jesus Christ tell the parable of the sower. Do you remember on that day in Matthew 12, he was there. Matthew 13, the same day, Jesus told the parable of the sower. And what is it that when we think about scattering, what do you scatter? And hopefully you're mouthing at your screens, seed. And, you know, there are a number of allusions to the parable throughout this letter. And actually, Painful as this might be that I'm going to suddenly be quiet for a bit and I can't see you on the screen. So I'm just trusting you can have a crack at doing this. I want you now to spend some time. and I'm going to just be quiet for a few minutes while you look for themes of the parable of the sower running through James. Now, I'm going to help you out a little bit. OK, um, to sort of perhaps speed the process up. So what I've done on your screen you'll see some references through James. And I want you to just scan through those references and see if you can pick out what I'm talking about. Can you see the idea of the parable of the sower in those references? So you guys go for it. Um, in my Bible, I've gone for a yellow pencil and I've colored wherever I see the themes of the parable of the sower going through James. See what you think. Go for it. Two minutes, I'm quiet. Okay then, so um, I've been through them and I've actually coloured them again because mine got a bit faded. So uh, I, it's useful for me to go through them as well. But with those ideas in mind, let's now turn to Luke chapter 8. So Luke 8 is one of the records of the Lord Jesus Christ telling the parable of the sower. Hopefully... Uh, your list uh, just about agrees with mine. So you can see there on uh, my screen that uh, I've now put the things that I, I've been colouring anyway. So actually the power of the sower is a really, really important parable. It's uh, the only one where the Lord Jesus Christ explains the different elements of the parable. Uh, and he tells the parable in Luke 8 from verses 4 to 8. 
And then he explains it. And I'd like now to, to read the explanation together. So we're going to pick up from verse 11. Luke 8, verse 11. Now, the parable is this. The seed is the word of God. Those by the wayside are they that hear, then cometh the devil and taketh the word out of their hearts, lest they should believe and be saved. They on the rock are they which, when they hear, receive the word with joy, and these have no root, which for a while believe, and in time of temptation fall away. And that which fell among thorns are they which, when they have heard, go forth and are choked with cares and riches and pleasures of this life, and bring no fruit to perfection. But that on the good ground are they which in an honest and good heart, having heard the word, keep it and bring forth fruit with patience. Now, what's really interesting here is that James picks up on all of these different ideas too. You see, the seed we know is the word. So if I was back in James 1, we see there in James 1 and verse 21 that where it says that the you've got to receive with meekness the engrafted, actually the revised version there says the implanted, like the seed that's planted, the implanted word. Uh, we notice that the uh, wayside ground are those that we just learn in verse 12 of Luke 8, that the devil takes away. And we notice the idea of the devil coming through in James 4 and verse 7. The stony ground, we learn, are those who have the trials of life. And the sun in the parable represents the trial, the heat, the, the, the difficulty of going through that. And James 1 and verse 11 the sun is no sooner risen with a burning heat. It's speaking there of the temptations, the trials of our lives. It, just as the Lord Jesus Christ explains that the thorns, we learn in verse uh, Luke 8 and verse 15, are those who are choked with the cares and riches and pleasures of this life. Well, if I was looking at James 5, James 5 and the opening verses there, or verse two, your riches are corrupted. Uh, in fact, I can see as well, he says in verse five, you have lived in pleasure on the earth. So there's the thorns, the thorny ground coming through in James's letter. Those who are carried away with the riches and pleasures of this life. And of course, the good ground are, is the ground which brings forth fruit. And hopefully you've already coloured in that there in James 3 and verse 17 and 18, you've got the idea that we've got to be full of mercy, of good fruits. The fruit of righteousness is sown in peace of them that make peace. So isn't that great that James picks up on all of the elements, all of the different grounds are there. And actually, I think he goes beyond this. And I'll, I'll show you how in a moment. But firstly, I want us to just consider the fact that there are four grounds. You see, there's a lot out there to stop us. Only one of the grounds helps to bring forth fruit. So if our, our leisure time is spent simply watching TV, reading trash, then, then no surprise that our faith will be challenged. And, and when it is, it'll go, it'll fly away. 
or, or if we spend our time and the only thing we're kind of really focused on is, is trying to make some money so that we can have some higher standard of life, uh, fancy car, e- extra things in life. Well, we might as well be on the thorny ground. You know, if that's actually what our motive is in life. So, so if we had a choice, where would we be? Where's the safest place to be? Uh, and really then the, the exhortation we're trying to bring out is have the sense to be on the good ground. Spend time with people who want to spend time with the word of God. Read things that will actually help you. Always, when you have the opportunity, get to a meeting. Join something like this. The fruit will come. Use the good ground. Now, I said that I think that James goes beyond just simply picking up from the uh, links to the power of the soul we've seen to having a look at the grounds. Uh, And actually, I'm saying that I think it goes beyond that even. Because if we think about the fruit that we should be trying to bring forth. If I said to you, no, turn to somebody near you, if you, there's somebody uh, else in the room with you, and say to them, what is the name of the fruit that God wants us to bring forth? The fruit of what? Hopefully, quite a lot of you would be saying the fruit of the Spirit. That is what God wants us to bring forth. And there, I've got it in Galatians 5 and verse 22, The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, and temperance. That is the fruit of the Spirit. In other words, the Spirit of God, the the character of God, we might say, the fruit, those characteristics are seen in those things, love, joy, peace. That's what God is about. That's the fruit of his Spirit. And if we go back to James, what we find is really exciting. So come back to James if you're not there already. You see, James picks up on each of these. Why? Because as we said from the outset, he's talking about hearing and doing. James heard the words of the Lord Jesus and now has thought about the fruit that we need to bring forth, what we need to do, what needs to be seen in our lives. And and what I can see, and I've just given them to you rather than sort of make you work on this one, is the fruit of the Spirit running through the letter that James writes. So I'll just give you a couple of minutes if you kind of want to note these things down. By all means, you can uh, have this PowerPoint and, um, yeah, sort of follow some of these connections up afterwards. Uh, The two that aren't in bold there, gentleness and temperance, aren't actually the same Greek word, but actually we get the same idea in the English. So it's just, surely the idea is there. I'm quite sure that James has picked up what the Lord Jesus Christ taught, listened, uh, probably read what Paul wrote to the Galatians. And now as he's writing this intensely practical letter, what he's saying is inspired, of course, by the Lord God, inspired to remember these things, is you've got to do them. It's not just about a list. They've got to be seen in your life. James is showing that faith has got to be active. Now, it's interesting that one of the main arguments that we hear for people saying, well, I'm not sure that this is James, the Lord's half-brother that wrote this, 
is people say, if he was, then surely he would have said that he was Jesus' half-brother, because that would have given him absolute authority in the things that he was writing. If anyone got a letter from the Lord Jesus Christ's half-brother, they would listen. So if he doesn't say it, it probably means that he's not Jesus' half-brother. But I think that's really mistaken, because now we've done the background research, we see exactly why he wouldn't have written down that he was the Lord Jesus Christ's half-brother. He knew that to be a blood relation of the Lord Jesus Christ was irrelevant. Uh, the Lord Jesus Christ said, didn't he, that you want to know who my mother and my brothers are? My mothers and my, my brothers are those who hear the word of God and do it. What made him a brother was because he wanted to do what the Lord Jesus Christ was saying. That's what it is to be a brother of the Lord Jesus. In fact, he writes in the letter, James does, we, we shouldn't be a respecter of persons. It doesn't matter whether you're, you're a Jew. It doesn't matter whether you are linked to a Christadelphian family. What matters is, are you looking to listen to the word of God and do it? That's what makes you in the family of God. That's what makes you a Christadelphian, a brother or sister of the Lord Jesus Christ. What made James a brother was to be a doer and not a hearer only. And so by saying in James 1 and verse 1, James, a servant, he was proving he was the Lord's brother because he was someone who served, someone who does. And what's lovely is he's ensuring that those he's writing to know that they're part of that relationship too. And, you know, 15 times through this letter, James refers to brethren, often beloved brethren. And of course, he's saying you can have this relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ too. You can be brothers with us. And so I'm going to give you another one minute this time. I went for orange. You can choose whichever color you like. 15 times. I want you to see if you can fly through and find the brothers, the brethren. First one, chapter one, verse nine. Let the brother, color in brother. Chapter one, verse 16. Do not err, my beloved brethren. Chapter one, verse 19. Wherefore, my beloved brethren. Chapter two, verse one my brethren chapter 2 verse 5 hearken my beloved brethren chapter 2 verse 14 15 3 verse 1 3 verse 10, 3 verse 12, 4 verse 11, 3 times in verse 11, brethren, brother, brother, same word. Chapter 5 verse 10. Chapter 5, verse 12. 
Finally, chapter 5 and verse 19. So I'm sure that actually James knew these brothers and sisters. The word brethren is encompassing brothers and sisters. He knew them. He knew them before they moved away. And now he's writing this letter inspired by the Lord God to, to encourage them, to lift them up. These ones who were scattered, who, who perhaps had to run with just the shirt that was on their backs, running from the persecution that was happening in Jerusalem. Remember in Acts 8. Now they are here. They are living all over the place in difficult circumstances, as we're going to find out. And James writes them this letter. How pleased they must have been to have this letter from James. So let's pick it up then in chapter one, now in verse two. My brethren, that's the one I didn't give you, did I? Chapter one, verse two. My brethren, count it all joy when you fall into diverse temptations. So remember, they're going into these trials. They're, they've run away from the difficulties of Jerusalem where they were being, some of their friends would have been put into prison, tortured, killed. And now here they are in these different places and James is saying, hold on in these difficulties. Count it all joy when you fall into diverse temptations, knowing this, that the trying of your faith worketh patience. Let patience have a perfect work. that You may be perfect and entire, wanting nothing. And if any of you lack wisdom, let him ask of God, who giveth to all men liberally and upbraideth not, and it shall be given to him. And so you can see how he's exhorting them. Keep coming back to listening to God. Ask wisdom of God. What we notice here is a clear structure. Um, so this is the, uh, the first thing. That was my um, little thing for you to sort of say to you, mark up your Bible. So, you know, we did that with brethren um, and I chose the wrong color. That I put yellow on the screen and we should have used orange. Um, Choose whatever colour you like when marking up your Bible. But I cannot tell you enough that make, get a relationship with your Bible. You know, make it come alive. Love it. If you had a last Hebrew manuscript growing, going, I'd be saying to you, don't touch it. But you don't. Get onto it. Make this something that you love, that you've got this relationship with. That you can remember where things are on the page. This is what you need to be able to do. This is your tool to help you on your walk towards the kingdom. So there's some of the key words that I've gone through in James. And if you've got some others, then make sure you share them with me. But what I wanted to just show you now is in James 1, and those verses that we've just uh, read from James 1, verses uh, 1 to uh, 6, I think I've got there, you can see that there's a real little, lovely little pattern there. Perhaps this would have helped them to remember this. Um, each time that the, the colored words that I've given you are the same words in Greek and, and the English doesn't show that quite so easily, does it? So we can see that there, uh, which are scattered abroad, joy. And that's that same Greek word, my brethren, counted all joy. When you fall into diverse temptations, that's the same word trying. Patience is easy. Perfect is easy. Wanting is the same word lack. Ask we get twice. Wavering we get twice. And even liberally comes up a bit later as well. So can you see how you've got this kind of clear thing happening? So what does this mean? Well, James is explaining that the difficulties that we encounter in life are trials that we should accept, even trying to accept them with joy, knowing that these things can help us. 
This is the suffering before the glory. So I, I don't know at all your circumstances now. For me, this actually time is, has been kind of quite nice, really. But I don't doubt that for some people, this has been a really trying time. But actually, whatever trials come into our life, we, we should try to accept them. And this sounds so strange, of course, with joy. But we believe that God is using those trials to develop us for his kingdom. It's the suffering before the glory. And actually, in the Acts record, we find Peter and the other apostles, perhaps including James, doing just this. Let me give you this cross-reference. In Acts 5, there in verse 40 to 42, having been beaten, so they're going through this horrific trial, they actually are rejoicing in that. So they accept the trial with joy. Uh, we're going to see another example of an ecclesia doing it. Now, I'll give you uh, this reference. I think it's from 2 Corinthians chapter 8 and verse 2. Let me see if uh, I can shoot there and read it to you. 2 Corinthians 8, talking about the ecclesia in Macedonia, I think it's the Philippine ecclesia, how that in a great trial of affliction, the abundance of their joy and their deep poverty abounded. So even in a real difficult time, they actually were able to turn it into a positive. So it's not that in some way we can just somehow take pleasure in the trials of life. Of course, they wouldn't be trials otherwise. We, we, we get that. Come to Hebrews 12. So if you're in James, it's only just a couple of pages back. In Hebrews 12 and verse 11, this perhaps helps us to understand it. It says here, no chastening, no trials for the present, you know, when you're going through them, seem to be joyous, but are grievous. Nevertheless, afterward, it yieldeth the peaceable fruit of righteousness unto them which are exercised thereby. And this is the same word in James 1 and verse 2. You can't pretend you're overjoyed when you're going through trials, but you can deal with the trials because you recognize that God is ultimately in control. God can be working in your life to bring about fruit. It's to bring forth the fruit, of, uh, peaceable fruit of righteousness, as it says there in verse 11. And interestingly, the only other place in the New Testament where those three words come together is in James 3 and verse 18. This is what God wants us to bring. Good fruit. And of course, few of us have to take a physical beating for our faith. But all of us will have struggles in our lives. And what we're being told is if we can accept them and patiently work through them, then we're being prepared for the kingdom. And what's so beautiful about this is that God will help us through. Look again at James 1 and verse 5. If any of you lack wisdom, so in other words, you're in this trial and you're thinking, how, I don't know, how am I, this is so hard, but what do I do? If any of you lack wisdom, verse 1, verse 5, sorry, let him ask of God and God will give to all men liberally. So ask wisdom of God. 
pray to God. But let me tell you something which is so important now. God will give us wisdom if we're single-minded in our desire to hear his wisdom. Look at this. Let him ask of God that giveth to all men liberally and upbraideth not, and it shall be given him. But let him ask in faith, nothing wavering. For he that wavereth is like a wave of the sea, driven with the wind and tossed. Let not that man think that he will receive anything of the Lord. A double-minded man is unstable in all his ways. And you might say, well, of course I'm double-minded because that's why I need wisdom. I'm not sure what to do. But what you need to be single-minded with is your desire to listen to God, to his wisdom. Ask God's wisdom and be sure that you want God's wisdom. Recently, somebody I know who is in a relationship with somebody spoke to me and we were talking about the, as the, the, this relationship with somebody. And this person is in the meeting and their relationship is with somebody outside of the meeting. And they're in a situation where they're not sure what to do. And they came with their own conclusion to say that what they love more than anything else, more than even this relationship they're in, is the word of God. And it was such a wise thing to say, because if they love the word of God more than anything else, and they are single minded in looking to follow the word of God, then the answer to the difficulty that they've got in their life will come from the word of God. One hundred percent it will come. But when you're asking, be sure that you actually are going to listen to the word of God. Don't say, oh, yeah, I, uh, yeah, I, I'm keen to hear the wisdom of God on this. But actually, when the answers are given in the word of God, you don't really want to hear it. That is a double minded person who is unstable in all their ways. Focus on the word and let the word of God guide you. There's a poignant verse in Jeremiah 8. It says this, the wise men are ashamed. They're dismayed and taken. Lo, they have rejected the word of the Lord. And what wisdom is in them? James says, if we lack wisdom, ask God. Wisdom comes from his word. And it takes humility to accept that and follow it through, which is why it says in verse 9, let the brother of low degree rejoice in that he is exalted uh, the word low degree there is used eight times in the new testament the first is regarding the lord jesus christ who who says in matthew 11 he is meek and lowly in heart uh, another occasion that it's used is in actually james 4 and verse 10 humble yourselves in the sight of god so you can see that actually we need to be lowly in heart. We need to be humble. Sorry, it's in James 4 and verse 6. Apologies, that's the word in James 4 and verse 6. So if, we, if we cultivate that disposition of humility, we can take great comfort knowing that God can be working with us to bring forth fruit to the end that we can receive the crown of life. Blessed verse, it says in James 1 and verse 12, blessed is the man that endureth temptation, for when he's been approved, he shall receive the crown of life, 
God will work through the difficulties of our life. He's helping us if we'll listen to his word and eventually we'll be crowned when, of course, the kingdom comes. Now, I think we've just about got time to just touch on the fact that there in verse 13, the next verse provides a bit of a challenge. Let no man say when he is tempted, I'm tempted of God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, neither tempted to any man. And people say, well, what's this? What's that about, that verse? And really, what it is telling us is that God isn't tempted to sin. He can't be tempted to do sin because sin is disobeying God. and God can't disobey himself. And, and with that comes a warning that not only is God not tempted to do wrong, but God never tempts man with a view to cause us, man, to do evil, to sin. Sin comes from within us and it leads to death. And that's such an important thing. We've got to own our sin. When we go through the trials of life, when we do things which are wrong, you've got to own your sin. So verse 14, every man is tempted when he's drawn away of his own lust and enticed. Then when lust hath conceived, it bringeth forth sin and sin when it is finished bringeth forth death. Do not err, my beloved brethren. Don't misunderstand that. You've got to own your sin. The trials that God gives us are there to approve us for the kingdom. And that's why in verse 12, if you've got an authorised version, you have noticed that instead of saying he is the endureth temptation for when he is tried, I read when he's been approved. Because every other occurrence of that Greek word is translated approved. God gives us trials to approve us for the kingdom. That's why he's doing it, to help us, to mould us for the kingdom. He's never given, giving us something to try us so that we might sin. God isn't interested in us sinning. He doesn't want us to sin. So never blame God for our sins. Don't ever say, well, this wretched nature that I've got, it's God's fault that he's given it to me. This is why I'm sinning. Or God has put these things in my life. This is why I'm sinning. Never, ever blame God for sin. Own your sin. Recognize you through your own lust bring about sin. Ask for God's forgiveness. Actually, here you're going to see an amazing contrast between what man brings in and what God brings in. Because in this section, we're going to see now a word that's only used here in James, found nowhere else in the New Testament. And the first occurrence of the word is here in verse 15. When lust hath conceived, it bringeth forth sin, and sin, when it is finished, bringeth forth death. So sin brings forth death. Now, in contrast, we're going to see what God brings forth. Because there, in verse 18, is the only other occurrence of that word. Of God's own will, he brings forth the word of truth. Now, isn't that just such a great contrast? The unstable man, his lust brings forth death. And our unchanging God, there in verse 17, every good gift is from above, cometh down from the Father of lights, with whom is no variation, neither shadow of turning. He brings his word, which can bring us 
life. How awesome is that? Look at this. Own your sin. Recognize when you're going through trials that when you fail, you, you fail. It's you that's sinning. But recognize that God is there to save. He is looking through his word to bring about life. It's him who's going to save our souls. And of course, it's the word that can save us. Look at it there in verse 21. Wherefore, put away all filthiness and superfluity of naughtiness, the things that we do when we're tempted to do wrong, put all that away and receive with meekness what God gives us, the engrafted word, which is able to save your souls. Now, that phrase, save your souls, you know, it sounds similar to me to S-O-S. Write it down somewhere, S-O-S, save our souls. When do people use that? Well, it's like when the ship is going down, isn't it? Save our souls. The S-O-S call goes out. For us, the thing that can save souls, what can save lives, is being willing to look to the word of God and implant it in your life. We're not looking into the word for the sake of it. We're looking into it to try and change us. Verse 22, be ye doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving your own selves. For if any be a doer of the word and not a, uh, sorry, be a hearer of the word and not a doer, he's like unto a man beholding his natural face in a glass. He beholds himself, goes his way, straightly forgetteth what manner of man he was. But whoso looks into the perfect law of liberty and continueth therein, he being not a forgetful hearer, but a doer of the work, this man shall be blessed in his deed. And hopefully there you've just seen the couplets, hear and do. There in verse 22, be ye doers of the word and not hearers only. There in verse 23, for if you be a hearer of the word and not a doer, and there at the end of verse 25, being not a forgetful hearer, but a doer, hear and do, hear and do, hear and do. And your margin might tell you that that's picked up from Matthew chapter 7, where the Lord Jesus Christ told a parable about a wise man. Remember, listen, wisdom. If any of you lack wisdom, where do you go? Well, what does a wise man do? We know in Matthew 7, we've got the parable about the wise man who built his house upon the rock. And this is what the Lord Jesus Christ did when he told this parable. He said in Matthew 7 and verse 26, Everyone that heareth these sayings of mine and doeth them not shall be likened unto a foolish man which built his house upon the sand. What we want to be is the wise man. He says in verse 24 of Matthew 7, therefore, whoever heareth these sayings of mine and doeth them, I will liken him unto a wise man which built his house upon a rock. You see, if we lack wisdom, go to God. That's to listen to the word of God and do it. And then you'll be like the person who's on a rock. You're not unstable but you're on a rock, stable in your life. A wise person hears the word of God and does something about it. And so through looking into God's word, we'll find that our faith is increased. Of course, it's 
Our faith only comes from the word of God. And as we look into the word of God and our faith is increased, in all sorts of ways, we'll be finding that God's word comes true. We'll, we'll see God's love for us. We'll see God's working in our lives. We'll see God's control. We'll see perspective in our lives. We're given purpose. We're able to deal with the problems. We're able to be confident in our decisions. And so through hearing the word of God, our faith will be increased. And in parallel with our faith increasing, we should find an effect happening in our lives. There should almost be an exponential life. As our faith goes up, so our works are going up. Actually, the two are together. That What's happening is we're listening to the word of God, relining our lives with the word of God. And so it's so important that this growth begins with the word of God. We've got to hear. And so just back in James 1 again. In verse 19, notice this. Wherefore, my blood brethren, let every man be swift to hear, slow to speak, slow to wrath. And you know what's so cool about that verse? Is it really sums up the rest of the letter. We've got to be swift to hear. Chapter one is all about hearing. You've seen it there in verse 22, verse 23, verse 25. Got to be swift to hear. You want to be slow to speak. Well, chapter three, it's all about the tongue. We won't get onto that today, but perhaps if these studies go on, I'll, I'll happily take you on through chapters uh, three and four and five in James. Today, we'll have a go at chapters one and two. And then you'll see that chapter four starts by, where's this wrath come from? Be slow to anger. And so what have we learned then in this session together? Well, hopefully we've seen the need to embed the word of God in our lives. And actually what that's meaning is we've got to put the fruit of spirit, the spirit in our lives. We can only do that if we're on the good ground. The good ground is where the seed, the word, can have a chance. And so we must endeavour to give God's word the best chance that we can. Be in the right places, be with the right people, study the word. And if we do that, God can work with us. He can bring us through the trials of life. He can even use those to help us to bring forth good fruit. We've seen that we need to recognize that we are responsible for our sins. We can't blame God. In fact, the only thing we can do with God is thank God for what he's given us. He's given us his son. He's given us the word, two gifts of many. And all the time we've seen that help is on offer for us in his word. The wisdom is here. And we've seen it's the word which is able to save our souls if we'll put it into our lives, if we'll hear it and do it. And of course, that takes humility. Let the brother of low degree rejoice in that he is exalted. 